Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Goddess Teens Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the third Sunday of Advent. It comes from Matthew eleven, chap- Matthew chapter eleven, verses two uh, through eleven. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. All right, so that's the expanded reading to verse 11. Uh, usually it cuts off at verse 10, but I thought I'd include it, include it uh, in case we wanted to discuss it. In terms of context, uh, how does this fall? I mean, we've discussed the context where this falls in the Gospel of Matthew um, for the last couple of years. How about in the context of the church year? How does this fall, especially among all of the other readings, uh, what should we make of what this Sunday is about so that we don't continually fall into the, did John the Baptist out? Uh, no, he didn't. <laughs> he did. Uh, th- that can get tiresome and old, particularly for your hearers. What is, uh, in the wisdom of the church, let's put it that way, what is this Sunday all about? It's still about preparing to observe Christmas as as a way to prepare to face judgment day, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, recognizing that blessed is the one who's not offended because of Jesus mm. and uh, rejoicing in the things that Jesus coming in the flesh has actually accomplished, uh, culminating really with the poor having the gospel preached to them. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a particularly, though, I mean, I know that these readings predate you know, the sort of Victorian Christmas stuff of our current culture. But uh, it is a particularly, I think, helpful pause because it is a joyful Sunday, um, which we'll get to in a minute, but, you know, kind of a uh, an antidote to the world's kind of craziness and nostalgia, sentimentality, you know, to it is a kind of breath, you know, when John the Baptist prepares us again by pointing to the Christ and reminding us of what's really at stake so mm. that we, we lift our eyes kind of above this world and roasted chestnuts and all that. Right. 
because it, yeah, it really it, is still. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. It really still is prepare, even though the theme is rejoice. Re- rejoicing itself is a type of preparation. Yeah, that it, the the kind of genus is prepare. The species is how are you going to do that? You're going to do that by rejoicing at this particular thing. And it is easy for us in this time to get caught up in what the rest of the world is doing and lose sight of what what the season is actually about. Yeah, absolutely. Or also to become weary even with what the mm. world is doing and the sort of pressure to, you know, create this perfect storybook Christmas <laughs> where everybody is, you know, happy and believes in Santa and whatever. So mm-hmm. I, I the, think it's I think it's a Go ahead. The uh, the reading that I did for for this in Lindemann again, Fred Lindemann, a Sermon on the Propers, he takes this entire Sunday as an opportunity to discuss the office of the ministry and how now the pastors have a similar role as John the Baptist of preparing the way of Jesus in his continual coming in word and sacrament and thus for his final coming his second coming in glory what 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 are your thoughts about that 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 we have the person of John the Baptist who is a faithful minister and continual continually points people to Christ even in the midst of his imprisonment or perhaps even in the midst of his doubts that he, he, he continues yeah. to prepare them by pointing them to Jesus. Well, I was, uh, it reminded me of uh, in John 10, 41, when they, they try to grab Jesus again, but many people are drawn to him nonetheless, and they say, John did no miracles, but all that John spoke of Jesus was true. Um, mm. That's really the, the index of faithfulness, ultimately, which can't really be seen on this side of glory fully. We have to take it on faith. You know, Lindemann's largely driven by the epistle for today, which is 1 Corinthians 4. So that's the whole, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, is it required in stewards that one be found faithful? And and then he goes on, and then uh, the Lord is going to judge him and will bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, then each one's praise will come from God. So Lindemann's very much influenced, you know, appropriately by the epistle and reading John's ministry and faithfulness through the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. But Mm -hmm. but I think the John 10 passage is useful. Um, And I think also interesting that John did no miracles, right? I mean, that's that's in the Bible. Um, we, obviously, there's no miracles recorded, but also that's the witness of the of his contemporaries. And yet, everything that he says about Jesus came true. And I was thinking how that's, you know, that's where we stand. We don't do any miracles either, but yeah. our faithfulness will be judged about whether or not what we said about Jesus was true. Mm. So, you know, there is John's a, a, such a fascinating figure because he is this bridge between the Testaments. We call him a prophet. I mean, Jesus calls him a prophet. Um, you know, what'd you go out in the desert to see? But the, uh, 
you know, he's not a prophet quite like the Old Testament prophets. He is the culmination and the end of prophets. And he is also the beginning of the office of the apostolic minister in a sense. He's not an apostle. He's not an apostolic minister. He's not quite a prophet either, um, even though that's the title that he gets and kind of the closest thing to what he is. So it's, it, he's a so, fascinating figure, I think. Yeah. So what what does Jesus mean that when he says, you went out to see a prophet, I tell you more than a prophet? It seems like you're <laughs> you're yeah. on a, something there along those lines. Like he is definitely the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets, but also then what setting um, uh, the pattern after which even the New Testament ministry would be would be based, or or is that going too far? Well, I mean, he's there's a correspondence. He's I, I mean, he's more than an apostolic minister. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if we could say he's more than an apostle, but. I mean, he does point to Jesus in a more direct way than any of the other prophets do, right? So we have that we have that connection with him. I think he's a foretaste of the kind of preaching that the New Testament will will be concerned with. I mean, he doesn't he does preach preach eschatologically, of course, and also he preaches, you know, justification. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he doesn't foretell events in the way that, you know, the prophets of the Old Testament did uh, largely. And he doesn't perform miracles the way that they did. And he doesn't seem to have the kind of uh, direct divine inspiration and giving a, giving to him. He doesn't write books of the Bible, right? Right. And uh, he does, even though he's Elijah, right? I mean, Elijah does all kinds of miracles and and does speak, you know, in the first person as as speaks the words of God almost as though he's God. Not not that he is, but you know what I mean. He's been given the word of God to speak in a way that John hasn't. It's it's a little different, isn't it? Don't you think that's fair? Uh yeah, I totally in, think that's fact, fair. That that yeah. he's yeah, he doesn't have any books written after him. <laughs> he uh, <laughs> he he doesn't uh, I mean, you could take behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as a prophecy. Um, but not in the same way that you would take the prophecies of Isaiah or Malachi or or Jeremiah of you know Nebuchadnezzar coming and then after seventy years being released. Uh, you, you don't have that same kind of prophetic vision of the future events being unfolded. Yeah, right. And his he yeah, and we, we of course we don't have a lot of his preaching recorded. But but what mm-hmm. we do is, you know, things that I, I guess in a sense we could say, right? We can take his sermons up whole, word for word, and preach them in a yeah. way that we can't with the prophets in the Old Testament because he's actually he is seeing what the prophets long to look into. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there, there's all that. I think that's what it means that he's more than a prophet. But there's also, of course, that I mean, the, the language is quite graphic there. Um, you know, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in. How did the ESV translate that? A man I forgot in soft what you read. clothing. Yeah, soft clothing. Well, we could be a lot more graphic than that. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty graphic word there. Uh, effeminate would be the nice way of saying it. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that, that's hilarious because he's, you know, what did you go out to see? A man dressed like a woman? 
uh, let's put it that way, to, to be not so crude. Indeed, those who dress like women uh, and play the part of women are in king's houses, which is pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty pointed. But what do you go out to mm-hmm. see? The opposite of that, right? That, that a prophet yeah. is a man of God and is expected to, to operate with courage and boldness, not caring about the opinions of men, but being faithful to God and to his word. Right. So not a reed in the wind, not a man acting the part of a Mm -hmm. woman. And that's not denigrating women. It's just recognizing that there is a masculinity of profit that has to do with courage, um, forthrightness, right? Uh, Willingness to suffer uh, and the like. So I listened to your interview with uh, Aaron Wren, by the way. I've started to listen to the Godestines crowd. After how long? So uh, I know, is that hilarious? I listened to the fr- one with Fritz too. They're both excellent. So I'm going to start listening more. But so when Aaron Wren talked about the um, masculine virtues and, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of, uh, in that interview, the problem that where we get great, kind of embarrassed was great. Uh, so, and I was, uh, I have been talking about this for a while now in a different way than he did. Um I would, I would wonder what he would say to this, but the, uh, what I have noticed is, I think this is r- close to what he said, is where we can really see the distinction isn't so much in the virtues as in the vices. So there is this, so he was saying, look, you know, courage, of course, women can be and should be courageous in the right sorts of situations, but men are judged by it. And that's right. what he said. And I think he's absolutely right. And what I have been saying is, is co- physic cowardice, cowardice is more offensive in a male than it is in a female. Whereas abandonment of children is more offensive in women than it is in men. And I'm no Mm -hmm. no way saying that women can act like cowards and it's just fine or that men should abandon their children. But I think that's where you can really see that. I I think that sort of helps to us to recognize if cowardice is more offensive in men, then men are more than courage is more necessary for them. So anyway, uh, yeah, I think he'd agree sorry, with that. I mean, according to our, you know, the discussion that I had with him, it, it seems like, yeah, men can be shamed by not having courage. Yeah. And, yeah, and, thought- and because of that, this is a primarily masculine virtue versus a feminine virtue. Right. Yeah. Which would be like nurturing and right. So Anyway, here, I think that uh, this is being set up. You, there's, this is like a kind of implied um, te- proof text for the necessity for pastors to be males. Because, because of that word that's used for soft there, right? Mm-hmm. That a prophet is to be the opposite of this. And a prophet is to expect resistance and suffering. There is a reality. And that's also in, written right in here with blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Uh, many will be offended because of him. And those who preach his word, you know, will, will take on the burden of that offense. They, mm-hmm. they will suffer because of the people who are offended. And, and so it's going to require, it's going to require some physical strength to, yeah. you know, some bodily resistance. And, and that doesn't mean, you know, I don't mean that, you know, we're going to be tackled in the parking lot by, People, though you know that has no, actually that happened. Did, that has happened. <laughs> but uh, but <laughs> but uh, it's not normally right. That's a, that's when you're dealing with a, 
probably a lot of other issues. But the uh, but there is a physicality to the office, and of course that just comes from stress and the burden. You know, like Paul, I mean, Paul speaks this way, right? Who is uh, what's he say? Who is uh, who is weak and I am not weak, or who is uh, I can't remember the language now. It's escaping me. But he's he's speaking about how when they're suffering, he's suffering, and his concern is for them. And mm-hmm. there's a there's kind of there's a physical toll. Now, yeah. sometimes we take on you know we we take it on too much. We get the, the ministers get a kind of messiah complex or a hero complex. But anyway, this is a, a a good text I think to recognize the the standard for the office of the ministry is of course Jesus himself. But you know, a close second is John the Baptist, and this is this is who we we strive to imitate and be like. I think even mm-hmm. more than Paul. Yeah, but I mean Paul well, too. But Paul doesn't. And, they don't say he's the greatest of those born of women. So take that, Paul. Yeah, it, and this is you know one of the things looking back and uh, on my seminary training. And again, I don't want to pick on the seminary because they have got a lot of stuff to do. But I think this is one of the issues that we're going to have to continually deal with is I don't remember, and it could just be my, my lack of memory uh, as well, or I wasn't paying attention, but I don't remember anything about being taught to stand your ground on things. I remember being taught to uh, almost like walk on eggshells in terms of keeping the peace within the congregation, obviously go about teaching and don't do anything unless everyone's on board and just teach and teach and teach. And it's kind of like, you that's a training for, uh, for men in soft clothing to, yep, to be a I reed agree. shaken in the wind. And uh, we need to kind of bring back the, the, I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, uh, the bull in the china shop kind of thing in terms of look you obviously there is wisdom that you need to weigh and you don't need to pick up every tug of war rope but um our primary training shouldn't be that of tiptoeing around things and kind of subversively trying to bring in changes and uh, in practice or in the way that we think about things, uh, but actually to be upfront and perhaps even to a certain extent in your face. Yeah. I, I think I've probably told that story about getting my elders to memorize the catechism on here. Um, probably. Haven't I? So, I mean, I just, to me, that that only happened a couple, of, maybe three years ago, uh, three years ago now. But to me, that was a watershed moment because I had been for you know, for decades, I mean, over little over two decades, you know, treating the elders like women. I mean, I mean, not consciously, but it was all about trying to convince them through reason and just teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and extorting and encouraging. And, you know, it was, uh, it was only when I finally talked to them, like we were in a locker room that they finally responded I mean, they were always mm. responding, and, and I, I don't. But I think you're. I think that it, you're exactly right. In fact, you know, I think that a bull in bulls in china shops should still act like bulls. So right. you know, maybe maybe the right thing is to smash some stuff, 
at? What are we doing in a stinking China shop? So since when is the church a China shop? Why is it set up like this? This is idiotic, right? I mean, you know, we, we didn't put the, uh, right? We're, the, the pastors in some sense are bulls. They're not kittens. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we need to recognize that this is what they're knocking over is not displays of China, but idols. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe we can almost redeem this criticism of the bull at a china shop. And it, of course, we know, right? Um, there are, uh, there is, there is also a call to gentleness and to reason, and to patience, and and so forth. And there's ways to obviously go too far. And there's kinds of you know desire to power and to lord it over that that can get in the way as well, and pride, but. It's been pretty one-sided in what we've been warned against, and I do think that you're you're right that our training has largely been it's been kind of feminine in terms of teach, mm-hmm. teach, teach, convince, extort, and you know never sort of challenge. And I think yeah. that that's what's missing. Not not that we wouldn't teach, but let's also raise the stakes. Let's challenge. Let's let's elevate. Right. Let's push people to to take this more seriously and to try harder and to you know see, so this was the big thing with the catechism was when all of a sudden I presented the memorization of the catechism as a feat of strength you know that's what changed it for them and I mm-hmm. think that you know we can do the same sort of thing and, and I think it's appropriate to talk about fasting as a feat of strength right that I'm going to mm-hmm. endure suffering I'm going to embrace resistance I'm not going to take the easy way out and, you know, I'm going to whatever, get up at six o'clock in the morning and read three chapters of the Bible every day. And that's a manly, that's a victory over weakness, you yeah. know, and it's that virile. Kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Which is manly. That's what the, right. Yeah. That's, well, what I virtue, mean, that's where the word comes from. Whenever, you know, whenever, and even still, it's kind of like whenever I go to a pastor's conference and it seems uh, a seminary professor is presenting often, uh, obviously not always, but often on the whole. And for the most part, there ends up being some sort of like discussion about now don't go and do all this in your congregations. Cause we don't want to get calls. It's like, well, why don't you want to get the calls? Like I got to right. get the calls. I got to get the phone calls <laughs> when someone's right. upset. Why don't you want to step up and, you know, be the face and be the tip of the spear? Why don't we want to do this together? Why is it kind of like I want to launch a grenade and step back and watch? That's silly. Right. Right. Or I, I, or I want to relish the grenades of the past. But thank God, you know, the age of the church militant is over and we don't act that way anymore. You know, it's like we're talking about Sparta. You know, and uh, yeah, as though, right, we're not in the church militant, the church fighting. We're, we're now, and I, I think that some of that is a failure. It's it's a weakness of leadership that oh, is. Oh, definitely. And I'm not, and, and because what happens is we're more cautious for our subordinates sometimes than we are for ourselves. So, so the problem is, I mean, I find myself in this position regularly. When I'm asked for advice from parish pastors, I'm like, I don't want to give them advice that gets them in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. So I might be more bold myself if I was there that I want to tell them to be because I don't want to be responsible for that. 
And I think that's a that's a failure of leadership. That's a that's a lack of respect for the subordinate. I mean, and I mm-hmm. mean, if you ask me for advice, you're placing yourself in a subordinate position. I'm, but you know, so I think that's a. It's yeah, you know, it's it's thinking again. It's thinking kind of like a woman, which is appropriate for women, right? That they think more about the person than they do the mission. Mm-hmm. But we should be thinking about the mission. So some guy calls me and says, "How do I move to every Sunday communion?" And I'm thinking like a woman, and I'm like, "Oh, I don't want you to get into trouble. I don't want life to be hard for you, right? You know, because that would make me sad, and I would feel responsible. So you know, be patient and be care. You know." Instead of saying, yeah, you know, go ahead, take the risk, take it on the chin, do the right thing and suffer the consequences mm-hmm. and be a man. Yeah. Right. So, well, I mean, we, I mean, we pretended as though we can get out of these things without any scars. And it's just not the yeah, case. That's right. I mean, we're going to have some or skin knees. Like, yeah. I, I never tell my kids when they're learning how to ride a bike that they're never going to fall. <laughs> but that's part of learning to ride right. a bike. So uh, yeah. why do why, why do we pretend like we can get out of this without falling off the bike every once in a while? Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. how do we bring that to well, bear I, in this preaching, right? Well, we maybe we we gotta. I mean, you know, I think we've got to hold our people to we higher standards. We got to push them. You know, let's let's be unashamed. I keep a big refrain of mine in the last few years has been, we got to stop being embarrassed by what the Bible says. Hmm. You know, if the Bible says it, we should not be embarrassed about it. So if we're, you know, if we're asked about is homosexuality a sin, right? We're tempted to just start tap dancing with, well, yes, but you know, everybody's a sinner and I'm the worst of all. And, you know, all this kind of stuff instead of, instead of answering the question, and you know that's it's not just homosexuality. I'd I'd say this relates also to tithing, to you know the third commandment, coming to church every week, uh, reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the kinds of things that really, you know, the what what it is that we're we're called to do and to be. And I think we've we give people excuses so quick, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we whatever whatever it is that the the question is about, we're right away because we're so terrified of legalism. So if somebody comes in and says, you know, I don't know what, um, you know, should I fast? You know, I heard about fasting. Should I do it? You know, we're right away like, well, you know, you can't earn God's favor by fasting and it doesn't matter to God. What matters to God is faith and all these kinds of caveats. And instead of saying, yeah, you should fast, be good for you. Yeah. And here's how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or here's some, here's some ideas about how to do it. And, I know. I mean, of course, we need these caveats, no doubt. I mean, even it's really interesting to look at the, um, what is it, Article 6, I think, in the uh, epitome and the solid declaration on the third use of the law, 5 or 6, right in there somewhere. Um, yeah, I think it's Article it's 6 funny. because 5 is law and gospel. 5 is law and gospel, 6, and then 7 maybe is good works. The mm-hmm. the Anyway, the in there, you know, it's funny when they're, they're trying to talk about the third use of the law. And they're really slipping, they keep slipping into first use of the law. And they also are just given constant caveats, right? They're, they're, they're nervous. You can just, you can feel their nervousness is the same as ours. If we speak about these, if we speak in these ways that are exhorting people, even talking about exhorting people, we right away have to qualify it. Well, that won't save them. And so 
I mean, so I mean, I, I I think I'm taking that as a positive example. I wasn't. I'm not complaining about the epitome. I think the the caveats are are right. At the same time, let's not make. Let's try to speak in such a way that the caveats don't take away the force of what we've said, or don't become the dominant thing. And we spend more time on the caveats than we do on the actual admonition. Yeah, you can caveat people to death, and then oh, you yes, just totally, as right. you said empty the the power of what you said previously you just take it all away and it's like oh so right. it doesn't matter and it's like no that's not exactly. what i was saying but that's exactly what we were saying <laughs> well you get this like i mean uh, i always laugh about uh you know this when the district president tries to say that the pastoral conferences are mandatory you know i think you should absolutely go to those things i think it's important to be part of the synod and to participate and so forth but you know he's i said you know he says they're mandatory i said yeah well what happens if i don't go oh nothing yeah well then they're not mandatory mm-hmm. um you know because that's what the word mandatory means and then he's like well technically you know i could kick someone out for it i'm like okay well have you ever done it has any district president ever done that okay well then stop calling it mandatory right so he, you know, they're, they want to talk. It's like you have to either. Yeah. Anyway, your, your, your point, uh, I agree with you. There's this kind of caveat that doesn't, that just undermines the actual statement. I, I think maybe mm-hmm. the district president, it's easy to say, cause I'm not one, but I think maybe, you know, he should put out, say, you don't come to this, there's going to be consequences. And, uh, I'm not going to just keep excusing all of this because it says in the constitution, you're obligated to come and I got a nuclear option and I'm not afraid to use it. Mm-hmm. Imagine if he did that. <laughs> Imagine if you receive like you missed one unexcused, right? Like yeah. instead of saying, you know, I've got a funeral that I got to go to, or someone's in the hospital, I'll be late or whatever the case is. What if yeah. you miss one unexcused and you hear, you, you know, you, you get an email, this is your first warning. Right. Or I mean, <laughs> right? that'd be great. Yeah, it would be <laughs> like, we're holding well, each other accountable. Right. Or imagine if you, you, you sent off an excuse and he came back and he said, yeah, I got some questions. <laughs> exactly. Like, you, you say, oh, I can't, I can't come because whatever. And then he's like, really? That's, we, we all have hospital calls to make, you know, is there no way for you to arrange this? You know, can you work a little later the day before? Can you, you know, I mean, imagine if, if they, uh, instead of just, just any excuse, you know, is taken and is accepted. Mm-hmm. What, what if they, you know, we had to show a doctor's note, like yeah. again, like in the real world, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you, if you work for GM and there's a mandatory conference, you know, you don't just not go or just give right. some lame excuse. Not very right. many times. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's funny. I know. I'm. This is why everybody thinks I'm a legalist. Um, you know, anymore. I just, though. I just don't care. I just, I, I don't yeah. care what they think anymore. It's kind of like you don't know. You don't know what I preach on Sunday. All right. So just stop it. Well, there you go. Philippians four. Be careful for nothing. You're like John the Baptist. You are indifferent to the criticisms of your peers and the praise of men. That is the ideal way to be, as Jesus himself was, right? I have so let's certain talk about people that, that I care. I know, I know. No, no, I wasn't, I wasn't mocking you. I mean, that is, yeah. I think that is, we, we really, 
I mean, of course, we have to be, we have to recognize criticism. We, with, with, we have to receive it with some humility, but we also have to recognize when the criticism is completely stupid, right? Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, there, there are times, you know, I mean, I, you know, we've all, especially in the office of the ministry, I've been accused of some insane things, right? Like um, I've been accused of teaching only Lutherans go to heaven. Hmm. Well, look, I've never taught anything near that, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not going to accept that criticism and say, well, you've got a point there. You know, I do sometimes <laughs> say that. No, I do not say that, you know, uh, and there's other things, right? You, you do sometimes have ridiculous criticism. And I think, I think the charge of legalism is ridiculous. We're not legalists. We're ministers of the gospel. And, mm-hmm. you know, even talking about this sort of stuff and wanting there to be a higher standard and wanting to actually have these things enforced is not legalism. It's it's recognizing that, you know, we've gone the too Bible far. Bible has authority. Yeah. Well, even this Constitution of the Missouri Senate or what or the bylaws right. or whatever it is. I mean, I don't actually know if the bylaws or the Constitution say these things because I have. We were forced to read through the handbook when I when I was a SEM student, and I did do mm-hmm. it. I read the whole thing, but you know, I don't know how much I comprehended or even remembered because it's it's yeah. hard to read that stuff when you're not interested in it. You don't. And I have not read it since. So I'm just assuming mm. that this is true, that the bylaws of the Constitution say this. Maybe they don't. Yeah. I'd have to ask John Sias. That's what I, instead of reading anything, when I have a question, I just ask John Sias. Yeah. <laughs> that's it's, it's the that's fast. <laughs> yeah. I well, bet he loves said, that, right? <laughs> you said that we got to be more concerned about the mission, not about the, you know, the personalities or the people involved. And so I think you are dead right on that, that we have lost what the mission is in terms yeah. of what, what pastors are called to do and, and called to be in their parishes. And, and that it's been like, we're, we're just like keepers of the peace instead of people who are at the tip of the spear rushing towards the the gates of hell, which will not prevail against us. And uh, we're just not leading in that way. Right. Well, I think, uh, so Herman Zasse one time said someplace that in in Europe, they have bishops because the society is monarchical, right? So the bishops are like princes or kings. And in America, then we have capitalism. You think he's going to say democracy, so we have voters' assemblies, but what he says is that the the rule of law and the government in America is capitalism. And so what we have are entrepreneurs and customer mm-hmm. service. And I think he's dead on. I don't think that the voters assembly are the problem. I think the problem is the idea that I'm running a franchise, you know, and it's my job to expand the brand and it's all and it's about, you know, the customer is always right. And I'm trying mm-hmm. to, you know, keep the money flowing. And that's what's, I, I think that's why we're such people pleasers or why we're, you know, or keep trying to keep the peace. Why are we trying to keep the peace? Because, you know, we got to keep the money going. We need the numbers. Mm-hmm. I mean, John the Baptist <laughs> does not care. I mean, he does not care who's offended, which is hilarious because then Jesus, you know, right? Blessed is he who's not offended because of me. Uh, that's pretty yep. funny to, to say to John the Baptist. 
You know, is John the Baptist himself offended at Jesus? He who is so, un, you know, unafraid of offending people? Yeah. Maybe. But so then what do you talk focus about on? Godette. Well, I want to say something about this Gaudette because you got me reading Lindemann and Parsh again, which I haven't done for a long time. So that's been fun. And uh, there's a really a nice paragraph in Parsh that the Roman church has a different gospel for this Sunday. But uh, I, I was, so it talked about, of course, the, the striking thing at Gaudette, the third Sunday in, in Advent is the color of the pyramids, right? That they're rose or pink, and that's a softened hue of violet. And it's largely driven by the introit, which is completely from the New Testament, which it's got to be maybe unique. I don't, I don't know. There's no psalm verse. It's just Philippians 4, 4 to 6. Rejoice in the Lord. Always again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So uh, that's the uh, the intro. It and then of course we have this these rose vestments. You had dalmatic and tunical come back. So you have this kind of fullness of stuff, and that of course symbolizes still repentance, but also joy. Right? It's a lightened hue. It's a it, it's this kind of median way to remind us that. We are never without joy, right? That's a fruit of the spirit. And he he makes it Parsh makes this point that this is extraordinary, and therefore lovers of the liturgy ought to make note of this. They ought to embrace this, they ought to celebrate it. And I think I thought that was really interesting. And I think that's a good encouragement. And I think a lot of people do this naturally. Like I have, we have uh, of course I know you have to be. Well, we used to think you had to be kind of a wealthy congregation to have rose pyramids, but they've become mm-hmm. more common. Do you guys right. have them? We do. You do? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's fun. And I think the fun part of it ought to be kind of embraced. This is fun. We get to do this twice a year. We only do it on Sundays. We're strict around here on it, though not everybody's thrilled about this with me. But I, we don't use them during the week. They're only for Sunday. On Monday, right. it goes back to Violet. And, uh, but like our men, a lot of our men will wear pink ties on that day. Um, of course, the women it's easier for, but they, they know it's coming. They look forward to it. And there is a kind, and I think that's, I think that's wonderful and very healthy. And uh, sometimes we get kind of mocked for that. You know, people are like, oh, great, we're going to have all these pictures on social media of the guys and their pink chasubles. Well, yeah, you are, you know. Um, guess what's going to happen at Christmas? You're going to have a whole bunch of pictures with people around Christmas trees. I mean, yeah. you know, that's the way this goes. And I think to to recognize this and to see this and to, yeah. So anyway, I think that's very healthy and good. I just wanted to mention that, that kind of embracing of it. And then also with this, this is a beautiful, I'm tempted to preach on the intro on this Philippians 4 this Sunday and to mm. talk about what joy is. But there's really kind of this two points of preparation that we are rejoicing. That I mean, there's an anticipation of, of the last day and the verdict that's already been announced that fills us with joy already, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, the whole point of always is that means rejoice when it sucks, right? It doesn't mean rejoice when you're eating cake. You don't have to tell people that, right? Yeah. The always means rejoice when it's bad. 
because you know that this is temporary and you know what is coming. It's, it's a, yeah. This is the posture of hope. And then, of course, also in the middle of that, we're also uh, going to repent of being offended by Jesus. That is, mm-hmm. that we're going to recognize in humility that he knows more than us, including the right time to come and the right crosses to give us. Uh, so this is, let your moderation be known unto all men, right? That is, think about your sanctification. Think about your public witness because the Lord is at hand, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a threat. Um, but, of course, it's also a promise. And then be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And I like, I think that this making your requests known to God is part of repentance because mm. part of what we're requesting is not just that he would forgive our sins, but that he'd make us better. Yeah. You know, that this is the, in the face of this, when we look, when we look at this, there's this, and that, you know, we don't make that request to God, you know, on pins and needles as though we don't know what he's going to say. I love the, I love the public confession of sins. Um, I love the language of that, of that, because if you look at that, it's funny how expectant and how joyful that is. I mean, there's a few points in there where it feels, you know, sort of like we're debasing ourselves. I, a poor, miserable sinner. But, but really, if you look at that closely, there's a lot of gospel. It's almost all gospel in that confession, right. even though it's a confession of sins, because, right, that, that, that sort of balanced thing. So I think that there is... I think in John the Baptist himself and in his preaching, you also see this, right? And, uh, you know, of course, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? But it's also there with repent, you know, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And, and even this question to Jesus, right? Are you the coming one or do we look for another? There is a forcefulness in that and a, a kind of a forwardness, right? Look, he, he's not, j- just tell me this, right? I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear all kinds of explanations and I don't want, right? Just tell us, are you the coming one or not? Yeah. Cause right. I'm willing to be in prison and I'm willing to be beheaded, you know, and whether he's doing that for himself or for the sake of his disciples, I don't think matters. Either way, there's this, right? It's a pretty forward statement. It um, is. But yeah. it's, a, it's, but it, it's a statement that that comes from not just his own strength of conviction and his boldness, but it's a, it's a statement that comes from faith, right? That knows what it's looking for and absolutely expects and believes that God is providing this coming one. Now, maybe he's got some doubts at this point because it doesn't seem like Jesus is acting the part or, you know, something. And maybe he's confused us. I never thought of this before. So in Matthew 10, Right before this, what happens is Jesus sends out the 12 with power to over the demons and to heal the sick. And in Mark and uh, Luke, it's reported that, in fact, they do both those things. They do drive out demons and they do heal sick, the sick. And then, and then the next thing we get is, you know, John the Baptist hears in prisons about, about the works of Jesus and then sends two of his disciples. And... I wonder if the problem, if he's thinking, what are, wait a minute, what are those, those guys are casting out demons. I thought that was the mess. I thought the Messiah was going to do that. If he's, Mm. if he's wondering why the apostles are doing it. Yeah. Anyway. Lindemann, yeah, Lindemann takes it, takes the, the tack of 
he had more expectation than what was revealed, right? That that there'd be something else uh, that Jesus wasn't right. doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that makes sense. In other words, it's a lack of faith on John's yeah. part. But I don't know. You, you not, so not you get a complete this, absence of faith. So yeah, yeah, just, no, no, no. right, not an absence of faith, right? Just, just not perfect faith. Faith that coexists with doubt on this side of glory, as though John yeah. was a Christian. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of like this whole theme. You know, the that it, this isn't effeminate. Prophets aren't effeminate. They're not reeds shaken in the wind. Then you get this this whole thing with John the Baptist, as well as Saint Paul, and the whole rejoicing. Like you know, I mean, yeah. this is the guy that lists what he went through in Second <laughs> right. Corinthians, and you can read all about it in Acts, but there's more in Second Corinthians. And then at the end of it all, he says, you know, I'm content with these weaknesses. I'm I delight in these weaknesses. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It, there's like a stubbornness that will not be pushed into despair. That. I kind of like maybe approaching that this week is we are going to be stubborn. And there's this whole thing in one of Nassim Taleb's books, Skin in the Game. He talks about how the inflexible or you know the 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 people who are uh, most stubborn, these are the ones that win. Hmm. Like they're the ones that yeah. that you know uh, that don't give in and make everyone else change for because of their stubbornness. It says so. If you want to win, be stubborn. <laughs> yeah, have, have I, I mean, skin I think in the right. game. Yeah, you, you uh, won't quit, right? Yeah, and there's a whole there's a whole side of treating this like you know, oh, poor John, poor John. Maybe he's just embracing what he knew was going to happen. And he's just pushing more and more. Go to go to Jesus. I don't know. I, yeah, that's I'm, right. I'm kind of wanting to go down that road and and talk about how not only should this describe the pastors, but this this is how the people should follow their pastors in this kind of stubbornness, this kind of yeah, I like it flexibility of who we point to and what we point to, and just dig our heels in, right. Yeah, and we're not gonna we're not quitting, right? We're not yeah. gonna quit the faith because it gets hard. I uh, so you know we almost we we're talk gonna about laugh masculinity. in the face of it. We're gonna laugh. We're gonna in laugh the face in the face of it. it, right? We, when we talk about masculinity, we almost always go to Ephesians five. But uh, I've been really been interested in Second Timothy two lately because it's got that kind of language in it, right? You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier, and also anyone who competes in athletics. He's not crowned. And it goes on. But it's it's really... Uh, I mean, I think really Second Timothy two is really helpful to t- think about this stuff, and you know the mm-hmm. you've got this the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, right, has to battle the land. Uh, well, this is and, the, and this language of strength. Yeah, this is the point that Ren was making with all of the people in the church, right? That the only 
way that they can talk about masculinity is in with respect to their wives and not with right. respect to anything else. And so if we always go to Ephesians 5, we're only going to be talking about it in terms of respect to their to their wives, not to the outside world or anything else. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I yeah, I didn't even put that together with I mean, I I, I remember I'm saying that of course, but I I didn't even think about how how that maybe is built upon a dependence of of Ephesians five. I mean, which mm-hmm. is obviously a key chapter. I mean, it's it's not as though that's not an essential aspect of this, but but if that's it, then right, that's where you end up. So yeah, then you become the you uh, like you become the holy doormat, right? Instead of the the one who, like in Second Timothy, you were saying, seeks opposition or endures hardship. Yeah. Uh, and faces it head on because it's good. Yeah, he wants to do his job, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's you know he's 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 proud. It's a it's a it's a tainted word, but right, he's he's proud. He's proud to be called to do these things, right? Yeah. I mean, you you get told you know you're the <laughs> you're the one that's going to breach the wall. You're the one, the first one up the ladder, right? I mean that's mm-hmm. a that's a position of honor because that requires great courage and strength and willingness to sacrifice and if the commander places you in that position it's because he believes you have all those things if he puts a if he puts a weak coward in that position the guy will shrink away and the whole the whole effort will fail right mm-hmm. so there's a there's a pride in being the the tip of the spear as you say it right i mean the seals aren't uh trying to figure out how to get out of going to war <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes there's, uh, but you know, but right. I mean, you know, they they want to be the first ones. Um, they want to be that because mm-hmm. you know they realize it's a, a there's a lot of honor that goes with it. Yeah, as there should yeah. be. I mean, they deserve they that want, honor. I'm not. They want to be on the team, so it's like you know the guy yeah. who sulks because he wasn't put in his pitcher, and the guy wanted to put a, the coach wanted to put him in his right field, like. We should have the, no matter who is raised up in the ministry, right? This is like St. Paul saying, you know, some people proclaim from rivalry and others from, mm. you know, from from real joy or something to that effect. And he's like, I don't care how they do it, just that they're doing it. <laughs> yeah. And we don't right. have that. We don't have that among us in terms of like, we're always like, well, why is he being you know, put up there, you know, I could be better than him. Or why does this guy have a, a recognition? This is just, this is so soft clothing kind of thing. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. It is soft clothing sort of thing. It, that, I mean, that is, uh, everybody has to be included. Everybody's feelings have to be considered. That's, that's yeah. feminine. Yeah. I mean, thank have God to have a participation it a- prize and. Right. Right. <laughs> Which again, right? I mean, there is. Thank God for women and for providing that perspective and so forth, because it's it's absolutely needed. Uh, and yet, you know, for that to become the only voice and the only way that we can speak, or the only way we're willing to speak, that becomes very problematic. Yeah, definitely. So, what are you going to focus on? Well, I think so. This idea of joy, I didn't. I just did a little bit of looking. I didn't have much time to, to look into this, uh, but I did read in a Bible dictionary about joy. And one of the things that uh, 
came out was that joy, particularly in the Old Testament, is closely connected with victory over enemies. And that's, I think, very insightful. And so that does get picked up in the New Testament also. So to to think about about that, and this is, again, um, you know, this is a sort of countercultural, right? Um, So I think this call to rejoice, and and what does it really mean to rejoice and to be joyful? I, I like to say that the word alleluia should be translated as boast in Yahweh rather than praise mm. Yahweh. So uh, I think that's a better translation, and I think it shows how obnoxious you know, monotheism is in the ancient world, that we're boasting. I mean, same thing when, when Moses is sent to Pharaoh, who, who do you say sent me, right? The one who is. Uh, that's a completely <laughs> insulting name. Uh, particularly to Pharaoh. It's a name of power, but it's also, you're, right? I'm the only one that is. Your gods are fake. You're fake. Uh, You have nothing to say about this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there is this, I always say with the great thing about polytheism is that in polytheism, there's always room for one more. And so, you know, the polytheists in the ancient world are the original coexist people. And they're like, you know, Sure, you and and I mean that is coexist is completely contrary to the Bible, because right we're the ones that boast that our God's the real one, and right. joy you know, is victory over enemies, and yeah. that all of that is is astounding. Um, so I think there's something so that, to that be said was, there. That was Taleb's point. Uh, when he was talking about this inflexibility, it's like, look at Christianity and its rise. The Romans just wanted to add it. They just yeah, wanted to they always add, want to add God. They just can't. Uh, so you know, let's share. Uh, you give me your God and I'll give you all my gods and we'll just get along. Right. And the Christians are like, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. And in fact, not only are we not going to do that, you shouldn't be worshiping that God. That's right. That's right. And that's the point of the unknown God, by the way is to make sure there's plenty of room. And, uh, you know, Paul, t- Paul turns that a little bit. He uses it as an excuse, but, but his point is not that then, you know, we can add Jesus to the list. And, yeah, I know. I, and I think this is, I really think this is, the, uh, this is where the battle line is going to be more clearly seen. I think it's already there because it's in our current society today, it's, it's monotheism that is so offensive right? That's, it's completely against Oprah. And I mean, the, the common idea in America, I think, even amongst many people who would call themselves Christians, is that all roads lead to heaven. It's just that, right, all, all religions worship the true God because there's only one God. It's just that, you know, maybe Christians are God's favorite, um, you know, or we have the most direct path, or, or maybe us and the Jews. But, you know, Anybody that worships, you know, Allah through Muhammad, it's good. It's the same, right? All of this is right. the same. And so for us to be out there saying, no, you're going to hell, your gods are fake, and they're not good enough. And our God, the real God, the one who is, who died and rose, does not hear your prayers. And he's not impressed with your efforts at good works. And you're going to hell. That is a right. very offensive message. Um I mean, it's pretty offensive. Yeah. But blessed well, is he who is not to, offended because of Jesus. Yeah, that gets back to your whole point of 
the refrain you said you've been having with your folks about stop being embarrassed by what the Bible says. Yes. Uh, this, this should be something that is a refrain for us all that sadly has come about that we are embarrassed by what is in the Bible and we shouldn't be. Yes. Yeah. That men are the head of the household, that homosexuality is a sin, that fornication is wrong, mm-hmm. right? That the uh, evolution yeah. is wrong. That's embarrassing for a lot of people. I mean, there, yeah. there's right. That there's only one God and that you, you only come to the father by the son. Yeah. I mean, all of those sorts of passages that some people go to hell. Uh, yeah. Original sin. Yeah. I mean, it just goes on and on. There are lots of things that we are embarrassed about and tempted to tap dance around when they come up. Yeah. So. And those should just be leaned into. <laughs> yes. Right. I, I think that's right. I think that's the only, that's. You know, it, it's what yeah. the seal says, embrace the suck. Yeah. Right? Okay. It's going to suck that people are going to hate you because of this, but embrace it. Delight in yeah. those things. Right. It'll make you stronger. Yeah. And um, right. On motorcycles too, we lean. So you lean into the curve. Yeah. <laughs> the tighter the curve, the, the, the further the lean. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's, uh, if, you, if you don't, you're going to die. So <laughs> yeah. you're going to crash. All right. All right. You got me excited. Uh, any, That's great. Any final thoughts? Nope. All right. Done. We'll, A lot we'll of thoughts. Talk to you next, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> All right. Week. Thanks, Jason. <laughs>